read this evening from uh, verses 8 and 9. Here now the holy and inerrant word of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the work of, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Have you, have you ever been given a second chance? Many chances, maybe. Um, you think about many of the famous uh, athletes who have been given second chances and went on to, to do great things. Um, Wes Welker's one. I don't know if you know him. He was a tight end for the New England Patriots for a long time with Tom Brady. And uh, I think had... I think Wes Welker may have had the most uh, touchdown receptions with Tom Brady, if I remember the statistics correctly. He was cut from the team early on. And then given a second chance, uh, Michael Jordan was cut at one time. Mark Burley, a famous um, pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Um, All these men were given a second chance, and when they got that second chance, the way that it affected them is, is obviously your attitude has changed. Maybe there's a little bit of humility that comes in. Uh, your work ethic has changed. Um, you work harder. Maybe in my own life, early in my uh, banking career, I made a, a terrible mistake. And the policy at the bank at that time required anybody who made the mistake I did was required to be terminated. And this was the bank policy. And so um, some of the folks got together and they said, well, you know, should we still have this policy? It's kind of outdated. And uh, they decided to change the policy and I was allowed to keep my job. And so I got a second chance. I was very, very thankful for that opportunity. Um, so second chances, they have an effect on us, don't they? Because we want to do better than we did before. And so I want you to think of this, in Christ, God has not given us a second chance per se. He's not given us a second chance. Because that insinuates, right, that that what Christ has actually done is now you're able to work and earn God's favor and maybe you'll be saved the second time around. But I think as we think think about the doctrine of redemption, especially, especially tonight as we think of election and reprobation, Uh, the condemnation of the wicked. As we think about those, what should it produce in my own heart? Well, it should produce, it should produce a deep sense of gratitude. It should produce a deep yearning to live for the glory of Christ for whom I have been set apart. And so tonight we're thinking about, I'm I'm, I'm looking at paragraph 5 and paragraph 7 of the third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so the, the fifth paragraph, just in a nutshell, says that God chose to save certain men in Christ for the praise of His glorious grace. And the seventh paragraph teaches us that God chose to pass by 
other men and condemned them for the praise of his glorious justice. So the fifth and the seventh paragraph, and we'll come back to the sixth paragraph, Lord willing, next week. But just in summary tonight, in salvation and condemnation, God has acted according to his good pleasure. In salvation and condemnation, God has acted according to his good pleasure. The first thing that we learn as we think about this fifth paragraph of the Westminster Confession is that it teaches us about God's good pleasure to the elect. And it uses this term over and over, this phrase, for uh, according to the pleasure of his will, according to his own good pleasure, God has done these things. And so what we learn under this paragraph is that according to his good pleasure, God chose to magnify Christ in your election. God chose to magnify Christ in your election. As you read, one of the things that, um, as, as you read uh, the catechisms, as you read the confession of faith, it, one of the things that you, you might try to do is as you read through them, um, identify the main point because there are lots of commas. You probably notice we go through these on a Sunday morning. There are lots of commas, lots of words, sometimes words that you don't un uh, understand. And so what I do is I go through the Westminster Confession and I try to, as I read a paragraph and say, what's the main idea? Because it will say something like, God for his good pleasure, according to uh, the secret counsel of his own will, before the foundation of the earth, etc., etc., and then it will finally get to the main point. And the main point of the fifth paragraph is that God chose his elect in Christ. It wants to make the point to every man who sees himself, perhaps, as one of the elect, as a redeemed man, that you are chosen in Christ. And so here's how we think through this. What did God do according to his own good pleasure in Christ for his elect? Well, first, in Christ, he chose them before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us. He chose His elect in Christ. And what this means is that at some point before God created the heavens and the earth, there was an agreement amongst the Trinity that Christ would give Himself as a substitute for the sins to atone for His elect. And this was all determined before the foundation of the earth. Let me, I want you to turn over with me I wasn't going to refer to this passage, but I think this is appropriate. Turn over with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to come back to this in, in a later chapter of the confession, but I want you to see this now. We've looked at this before. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now pay attention here to verse 2. And Paul, what Paul is telling you in verse 2 is, how do I carry on? How do I carry on this apostolic ministry? In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, 
promised before the ages began. And if you remember, we've looked at that phrase before the ages began, and it literally means before the foundation of the earth, before the world was created. And so the question that we have to answer is, well, who did God promise? Who did he make this promise to before the world began? Well, he made the promise to his son. That if he would accomplish all the stipulations of the covenant, his blood would redeem a people. God redeemed. He chose his elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So in Christ... God did His electing decree. Made His electing decree. Also, in Christ, He chose according to His eternal and immutable purpose. If He has chosen you, you cannot be unchosen. He cannot cast you aside. Why? Well, because from one perspective, He has chosen you in Christ. He has set apart His elect for the glory of His own Son, but we learned that his decree, as we thought about a few weeks ago, is eternal and immutable. It cannot be changed. Why? Because God cannot change. And his decree is just as certain as his nature. In Christ, he chose you before the foundation of the world. In Christ, he chose according to his eternal and immutable purpose. In Christ, He chose according to the secret counsel of and good pleasure of His will. In other words, the basis of God's choice of any man is rooted in His own secret counsel. What does that mean? His secret counsel. Well, you think about the King Haman in the book of Esther, and he had counselors, men who would come to him and give him advice. Well, what the Scriptures teach us is that God had none. All that He has done, all that He has decreed, He has decreed according to His own secret counsel. And why does it call it secret? It calls it secret because He has not made all of His intentions and purposes clear to us. And he chose according to the good pleasure of his will. Why is that important? Secret counsel, he had no advisors. No one told him what to do. He was completely free. It was according to his own infinite wisdom. And the good pleasure of his will. What what does that mean? What are we being taught there? No one twisted his arm. Nothing coerced him. Nothing biased his opinion toward one person or another. He determined himself. Ephesians 1.11 teaches us, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose 
and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, and here's that same phrase, before the ages began. I want you to turn over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read this again, 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so we could look at this and many principles come, uh, come out of it, many, many doctrines we could teach, but one of those is there's, there's this sense in which God gave you grace before He created the world in Christ. But I want you to notice why Paul wrote that. Will you begin reading with me in verse 8? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the, the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, right there, Paul makes a very important application of this doctrine for us. What is it? His purpose was to convince Timothy to trust in the power of God in Christ. This is not just a doctrine for thinking about. It is a doctrine that gives us courage to preach the gospel. And Paul would convince you of the same. In Christ... He chose the elect before the foundation of the world. In Christ, He chose according to His eternal and immutable purpose. In Christ, He chose according to the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. And in Christ, He chose unto everlasting glory. He determined the end. All of the elect are de destined for eternal and everlasting glory. And one of the things that he does for us, and we continue in the confession of faith as we think about this, is he denies us any share in the glory of salvation. The confession goes on and it says, why did he do this? Why would he save me? Why, why me? Why not someone else? Well, we are reminded as we think back to Ephesians chapter 2 that He saved all of us out of His mere free grace and love. Free grace. 
Notice how the writers of the confession add that modifying word that they don't necessarily need to add. Because they could simply say, out of His grace and love. And you would assume, well, everybody knows what that means. But they understand that some will need a little extra. And so they add this emphasis, free grace. Well, what does that mean? What is free grace? How do we distinguish that? Well, it goes on. Without any foresight of faith, without any foresight of good works, without any foresight of perseverance, or anything else as conditions or causes, do you see, inducing him to choose anyone. What, what, it's, what it's saying is, we, we have no share. There's nothing I can claim. There's no attribute in Brian McCullough or any of the rest of us if we are chosen in, in Christ. There's nothing that we can say, this distinguishes me. It's not because he knew you would believe. It's not because you would uh, perform certain good works. It's not because you would persevere in the faith. It is out of his free grace and love. As we think about this, we naturally go to Romans chapter 9 where the confession goes. And there was a moment where Rebecca had become pregnant with her two sons. Jacob and Esau. And even in her womb, the two boys were wrestling. And God revealed to Rebekah before the two boys had ever been born. As the Scriptures say, God said to her, this is Romans 9.13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And as we started on Wednesday night, maybe some of you all remember several weeks back, the first question that we wrestled with was, did God hate the unborn infant Esau? And we wrestled through that. Well, that can't be. Surely there's some reason inducing God to set His hatred upon this unborn boy. We want to say, there's got to be a cause there. Some kind of something that He hates him for. And then we wrestled through it. He said, well, if you look at the life of Jacob... He was really no better than his brother. He was a deceiver. His name meant heel grabber. He was an immoral man. And we concluded, I don't know if you remember, that what was surprising, what is surprising about that passage of Scripture is not that God would say He hated Esau. What's surprising about that passage is that he would say he loved Jacob. And God has done all of this, we are reminded, for the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1 6 and 12. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Why why did God save any man? To the praise of His glory. To demonstrate His grace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father's purpose in your redemption is to exalt His Son. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit in this world is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so as we gather as God's body, why, what do we gather to do? How do we know that the Spirit is in our midst and that the Father is looking upon us with pleasure is if we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess His name and we sing to His glory. And I think as, as, we, as we work through this, there are two realizations. Realization number one, um, you didn't contribute anything to your salvation. The only thing that you and I contribute is sin. That's realization number one. Realization number two. I don't contribute anything to my preservation. Realization number one. You didn't contribute anything to your salvation. And realization number two. You don't contribute anything to your preservation. Why? Why is God preserving you in Christ by His Holy Spirit? For the exaltation of His Son. Do you, do you see? This is what makes this eternal and immutable. He is not going to compromise the glory of His Son one iota. And this gives us confidence in our eternal salvation Paragraph 7 turns us to a, an even more difficult aspect of this. Well, what about the non-elect? Our second point is God's good pleasure to the reprobate. What, is it, what do we mean by reprobate? Well, we mean those who are condemned to die and to undergo the wrath of God for all eternity. Here's the distinction that, that we should make. For all of the elect, all of the elect are in Christ. From beginning to end, in Christ. For the reprobate, they are in justice. They are in justice. First, they are in justice in that God passed all the rest of mankind by. What does this mean? The, the confession of faith is very careful to, to make sure that we understand God's activity in election and redeeming men to, unto Himself and very careful to help us understand His activity toward the unrighteous. Now, you know, we just read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which teach us that you and I are saved by grace through faith. And then it goes on and it says, and this is not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. So what do we understand from that? Well, God has given me faith. He has borne faith in me so that I might be able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But the contrary is not true. You might say, well, does that mean that He gives unbelief to the reprobate? No. He does not. God actively saves the elect, but with reference to the rest of mankind, Scripture teaches us that He passes them by. In justice, God passed by the rest of mankind. In justice, God foreordained them 
to dishonor and wrath before the foundation of the earth. Just as He destined His elect for glory before the foundation of the earth, He destined the reprobate to undergo dishonor and wrath. Turn over with me to Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter. Jude 1 verse 4. Remember, Pastor Danny preached uh, through this just uh, a few months ago, but for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago, do you see this, were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly men who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These men actively... Uh, deny Christ as Savior. And yet the Scriptures say that long ago they were designated for this condemnation. Turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Let's begin reading in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we know that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of God's great temple. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. You see, from before the foundation of the world, Scripture clearly teaches us that certain men were predestined to hear the Gospel and to stumble over the proclamation of that Gospel. We think of of the Jews in Romans chapters 10 and 11. A partial hardening has come upon them. What is the confession keen to remind us of as we think even of this difficult doctrine? Well, one, God did even this according to the good pleasure of His will. In other words, men are not lost because God is weak. Men are not lost because God is impotent to save them. Certain men are lost because God has determined not to save them. God did this just as He did in His decree of election according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will. Why do you think the confession would call it the unsearchable counsel? Because even right now, isn't within your own heart there a question rising up? Why? We know that God has the power to do whatsoever He chooses to do. All His holy will. This is what we proclaim from the time that we are children even to now. God can do all His holy will. Why not save everyone?
The answer from the confession is we cannot peer into God's unsearchable counsels. We may only know what He has chosen to reveal to us. All that we can conclude is that He has done all of this for His own glory, as in all things. And so we praise Him for His sovereign power. As we finish, turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, picking up in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The scriptures teach us that God raised up Pharaoh so, not so that he might save him, but so that he might demonstrate his power through him. Verses 21 and 22. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. You, you see, the Scriptures here are reminding us that, that there is, there, again, as we said last Sunday, there is no such thing as a radical man there is no one who lives outside of the purpose of God. Every man is living out God's purpose for his life, both the elect and the reprobate, and both for the glory of God. One to the praise of his glorious grace, and the other to the praise of his glorious justice. You remember in Psalm chapter 101, it reminds us that we praise God for all of his attributes. His mercy and His justice. In salvation and in condemnation, God has acted according to His good pleasure. You, you and I know that we have comprehended the doctrines of election and reprobation when, when your confession is, all I have is Christ. This doctrine is also an exhortation to holiness. Those who truly believe God has saved them from His wrath, that He has set them apart to be an honorable vessel in His great house, how will that affect their life? If I'm an honorable vessel, not a dishonorable one, will you have a passion for glorifying Him through obedience? Will you have a passion for magnifying Christ in worship? Not every vessel is given relief from God's wrath. If you have been, praise Christ daily. 
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you, we confess that we have scratched the surface of these doctrines. And we confess that these, quite frankly, are not the most pleasant to us to consider. But they are a comfort to our souls. Lord, in knowing that you are an absolute sovereign over your creation. No one usurps your power. No one is undermining your plan and your purpose for your creation. No one can take our salvation away from us because you have decreed it in Christ. And we are as secure in our salvation as your Son is secure in your love. Father, the great mystery to us is not that you would condemn certain men for sin. It is that you would save any at all. And we thank you, dear Father, and ask that you would give us the grace of assurance that we might know we are of your elect. We pray for the sake of Christ's glory and in his name, amen.